Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Well, tonight I'd like to continue my series on happiness. Happiness, part four. Unfortunately, this is the last talk uh, I'll be giving in the evening. Um, We could go on happiness part five, six, seven, eight, nine, and beyond, uh, because as I've been trying to communicate, um, the Buddha's teachings are a path to happiness, and there's so many different ways that we can approach this... um, this idea, uh, but tonight I, I thought I'd offer uh, in this last talk another slant on um, on the teachings of happiness that's uh, not so much about what we can cultivate and develop, but the opposite side, what we can um, put down. And tonight, particularly, I want to focus on the joy of letting go. <clears throat> Sometimes I, I've thought of, uh, of this in the, in the course that I do. Well, want some things for the greed types that say, oh yeah, give me more of that, and some for the aversive types, and who as I, I think I might have mentioned, some of my best, truly, some of my best friends are aversive types. And uh, if you are not prone to saying, oh, give me more, and are more, uh, let's take away. Uh, well, this is a talk for, for you particularly and for all of us because it's just as profound a path to happiness in learning to say no and to let go as it is to, um, to develop and cultivate. In fact, we'll be talking about the, the joy of cultivating the capacity to let go. The, the word in the teachings is nekama, N-E-K-K-H-A-M-A, which uh, is one of the paramitas, one of the ten perfections, usually translated as renunciation. Now, if I said we're going to talk about the joy of renunciation, perhaps it might snag a little in some people's minds. Well, that doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun because when we hear the word renunciation, we think in terms of sacrifice and deprivation and, okay, I'll do without, I'll let it go. And it's not exactly joyful, as we often hear that word. But the Buddha talked very specifically about the joy of renunciation. There's this one discourse. It's the same discourse when I, that I quoted that line, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon becomes the inclination of their mind. He said, as he was um, practicing before he had his awakening, he saw that there were two different kinds of thoughts, two different categories of thoughts that his mind went to. Some 
sometimes he'd have thoughts of um, desire, um, ill will, and cruelty. So this is really just before he was enlightened. His mind still went there. So if you have those kinds of thoughts, cut yourself a little slack. (laughs) And he noticed that when he had those thoughts, he said, you know, it just doesn't feel so good. They cause affliction to myself or to others. And then he said some other times he'd sit down and he'd have thoughts of non-ill will or kindness, non-cruelty or compassion, and thoughts of renunciation. And he said, whenever I reflected on those kinds of thoughts, I became happier and happier. So, how is that so? I want to go into that tonight, and actually it's a kind of deeper exploration of one aspect that I talked about last talk when I talked about non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. And non-greed, I was speaking particularly in the, the sense of generosity. And I talked a little bit about letting go, but there's a whole other, uh, there are many other dimensions of, of it that I wanted to specifically share with you and have you see about experimenting in your own practice how this is really a joyful practice. Rather than sacrifice or deprivation, letting go leads to joy and happiness when we realize that we don't have to hold on to extra baggage. It's like we can put down the burden of what we don't really need. What we do need is the wisdom to distinguish what we need from what we want. But when we see with a discerning eye and mind, oh, do I really need this? Is this going to really bring me happiness? Then we can put down the extra stuff that we don't really need. That doesn't mean dropping it like a hot potato. Sometimes people hear the words letting go and they think, oh, I've got to how do I get rid of this? You know, just, God, it's just stuck. You know, maybe I could scrape off this gooey mess of attachment somehow. It doesn't mean rejecting things. It doesn't mean, oh no, I shouldn't allow myself to appreciate this sunset or this fireplace in the rain or this blustery wind you know you can how many people appreciated the the intensity of the of the rain today wasn't it cool it's like wow you know we were sitting there in the yurt and it was just in the yurt it it's like amplified it it felt like the end of the world and we were all sitting there saying wow it's so nice to be inside doesn't mean, oh no, I shouldn't appreciate that or I shouldn't appreciate being inside. Because if we think of letting go as rejecting, then we've just created another problem for ourselves. Now, there is a value to guarding the sense doors and not putting ourselves in 
temptations weigh when we know that we're easily caught. But when there's a, a pleasant moment, as, I, as I've said in earlier talks, I think, and the Buddha said, it's quite wholesome to let yourself enjoy it. But when there's something that doesn't serve us, then how does this letting go work? It's not dropping quickly or trying to distance. One way we, th- we can think of it, and perhaps you've heard this before and arrived at your own conclusions, letting go when something is here that we don't need is really just letting it be and not picking it up, not having to get seduced or sucked into, oh, I don't need to go there. It doesn't mean to get rid of thoughts. You know, if I could only let go of these thoughts, it gets very sticky, particularly when it comes to thoughts, trying to get rid of thoughts. Have you noticed? (laughs) If I say, don't think of a pink elephant right now, get it out of your head, and you try really hard to get it out of your head, it's the only thing that's there. So as you're pushing away, it just engages and gives more life to this blip that just came through the screen that could go just as quickly as it came if you're not bothered by it. I think of letting go as a kind of uncomplicating uncomplicating the mind. It's a movement towards simplicity, simplifying. You know, these days, if you go to, the, to a, a newsstand, you see there's this book on... There's, well, Voluntary Simplicity is, a, is an old classic that's a very profound book. There's, but there's The Simple Life and Simple Abundance and Real Simple Magazine, and we are craving simplicity because this culture has so much that it just becomes overwhelming. We just need less. We need a little bit of space. That's what we need. You know, it's that feeling when you, when you get rid of the clutter. Doesn't it feel great? You finally get to your closet. It's been there waiting for you for months, years, maybe decades, right? And then you finally just, all right, let's get that. And it's not like when you give your stuff away to Goodwill or whoever or pass it on. You rarely say, gee, I, want, I shouldn't have given that. It's gone. But you do notice how much space there is and how good it feels. Well, if you think of this quality of letting go as just creating more space in the heart, in the mind in your environment, uh, it's really delightful. I want to share with you um, Ajahn Sumedho's thoughts on letting go, since he's been a companion for this retreat, and he has one of the best uh, practices for it. He says, The practice of letting go is very effective, especially for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking, 
You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, letting go. Rather than trying to, to develop this practice and then develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit and then the Madhyamaka and the Prajnaparamita and get ordinations in the Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism, instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> you don't need all of that. I mean, it's good to have some understanding, but when you are spinning your wheels over and over, trying to get to the bottom of something, just let go, let go. This letting go is really the movement from the second noble truth. The cause of suffering is the wanting mind, is attachment, to the third noble truth, the end of suffering. So this is not a small thing we're talking about. It's the way to go from suffering to freedom. Letting go or renunciation or simplifying, it's not something that we do to ourselves. All right, you know, like, I'll let go, I'll be a good boy, I'll try to do it right. It's really something that we do for ourselves. When we see that that's where we're moving, it's not a, it's not a, a, a sacrifice, it's a gift that we give to ourselves. Now, you might reflect, at least I reflected, on why do we hold on? I mean, you probably have been reading Buddhist teachings for many years, and perhaps you've seen there's a little bit more letting go to do. Why do we hold on? Well, for one, we don't see in the moment the pain that comes from holding on. We usually see it afterwards. We say, I can't believe I'm in this place again. I can't, here I am again. How did I get sucked in? You ever have that thought? I've spoken to a number of people in the last weeks can't believe it. I know that thought very well. But what gets easier and easier is you start believing, oh yeah, here I am again. And you can be in on the joke instead of the butt of the joke when you see, oh, that's the human condition, isn't it? Until we see. Every time you see, here you are again, 
instead of feeling discouraged or frustrated, I find it very uplifting to, sit, to realize that I'm seeing. Here I am caught. Because if you don't see you're caught, then you're really in trouble. But every time it's like coming back to the breath or seeing that you've been lost in thought, any kind of thought, oh, instead of, oh, darn it, there I was lost, it's, ah, I just woke up. And it's the same with seeing how we've gotten hooked and, and trapped. Oh, that's how it works. Then you're seeing the second noble truth directly. So every time you see that, you can feel a, um, both a compassion for the depth of the conditioning and the possibility of freedom. Oh, I don't need to go there. And little by little, I, I'm convinced we learn more and more. At least the lag time is a little bit shorter. So we don't see the pain in holding on in that moment. And also there's a, a familiarity of old patterns that we don't often realize there are other strategies and until we come to a place like this and we're learning other strategies. But out in our daily life, everything conspires to have us hooked. And so we are learning these new strategies, or for many of us, learning strategies that we've been seeing for years lead to a different place than holding on. But we have to be very patient with the process. Monastics have it a little bit easier in their life of simplicity. And they just have a bowl, a robe, shelter, and um, medicine. Those are the four requisites. So you might think, oh, it's, it's easy if you're a monk. Well, I've spoken to a number of monks who say it's, it's not as easy as you think, even when it's getting very, very simple down there, although it's definitely a support. Now, the mind might say, well, gosh, yeah, my life is so complicated, maybe I should become a monk or a nun. <laughs> Has that thought occurred to you? Yeah. Or... I know that's not my dharma, so I'm going to have a real uphill battle. Or, gosh, well, if less is better, does it mean I'm supposed to give everything away? Because sometimes we can get caught in that end of things, too. Oh, it's not okay to um, allow ourselves to prosper and to enjoy life. I just want to, while I'm on this topic, just mention a a brief exchange with the Buddha and Anattapindika, who, as um, some of you know, was one of the the main patrons of the Buddha. He was one of the wealthiest uh, men in the kingdom and, in fact, bought the the Jetta Grove, Anattapindika's park, for the outrageous price that the... Uh, the owner said would se- he'd sell it to him for, thinking that Anattapindika would never go for it. He said, if you can cover all the grounds with gold, I'll give it to you. And Anattapindika did it. Right? And he still had plenty left over. Right? 
And uh, Anattapindika, when he'd hear the, the Buddha talk about simplifying and renunciation and doing without, he said to him, um, Lord, should I give up all my wealth and possessions and renounce the world? Want to hear what the Buddha said? <laughs> the Buddha said, a person who possesses riches and uses them wisely is a blessing to humanity. So it's not the fact that, you ha- that one has wealth that's a problem. It's the attachment to the wealth. Or it's what we do with it. We can be philanthropists or share in our, in our bounty. So it's not so much the circumstances, what we, how we relate to what we have. Okay, I want to mention a few different aspects of letting go that perhaps we can bring into our practice. Renunciation or letting go, one aspect of it is restraint. That is consciously holding back and not, as I said, not picking up. And then there's other aspects where there's a joy in the releasing. So in the restraint, it's like you're, you're disciplining, you're holding yourself back from those tendencies, those habits of mind. And in the, the wisdom aspect of letting go, the joy, what becomes the joy of letting go, there is the lightening of the load, lightening up. First, around restraint. It is the ability to say no. And it creates a spaciousness in the mind and in the heart. There's also a power that comes from discipline. Particularly what the Buddha talked about, and I could have had this as one, one whole talk in my, my course, uh, it, it is one, uh, one theme for the month, is the, the letting go of unskillful actions in the um, area of living um, an ethical life, a life of integrity, sila. You probably know sila, samadhi, and panya is another way of looking at the Eightfold Path. The Buddha said, if you are restraining yourself from causing suffering, it creates the foundation for meditative training and for an openness of heart. And he he talked about the happiness that comes from this kind of skillful action, restraining yourself from unskillful action as one of the great happinesses of, uh, of human life. He has one discourse where he, he talks about the different happinesses for lay people, even people who've never heard of the teachings or, for, or practice, uh, practice meditation. And he talked about four practices, particularly four happiness practices. He said there's the There's the the happiness of being free of debt. This isn't actually a practice, but it's circumstance. There's the happiness of being free of debt. 
which does feel really good. There's the happiness of being not only free of debt, but having enough to support our loved ones. Also, a great source of joy. There's the happiness that comes from having enough wealth, as he said to Anattapindaka, to be generous with others. And then there's the fourth happiness, which he called the bliss of blamelessness. The bliss of blamelessness is acting with integrity and virtuous conduct. And he said, compared to the bliss of blamelessness, the other three happinesses are not one-sixteenth as potent. I don't know how he came up with that equation, but that's just what it says in the in the sutta, in the Anguttara Nikaya. Not one-sixteenth. At first I thought, well, come on, that? Sixteen times more? And then it, when I thought about it, it was so obvious. If you are not in alignment with your values, how can you enjoy your good fortune? So I, I think he, he underestimated, perhaps, maybe he was being on the conservative side, that this bliss of blamelessness, this restraint, is really the power of delayed gratification, where you think, oh, if I only have this quick hit, it'll feel so good. And then afterwards you say, oh, God, I can't believe I did that again. I sometimes think of the whole spiritual path as more and more learning the power of delayed gratification to see where happiness really lies. This is from uh, William Blake, that great Buddhist uh, writer. But he has real wisdom here. He says, those who enter the kingdom of heaven are not the ones who have no passions or who have curbed their passions but those who've developed an understanding of them. It's not like you have to get rid of your passion, but when you develop an understanding of them, you see, is, what is this leading to? Is this going to be causing suffering to myself or to others or not? In the Tao, Taoist um, teachings, I don't know if it's Lao Tzu or um, Chuang Tzu. He says, He who stops or knows when to stop will not meet danger. He who stops or knows when to stop will not meet danger. This is from another um, wisdom source. This is... um, from an 18-year-old who sat at a retreat here at Spirit Rock uh, last year, who discovered this for himself. And he, he wrote it in such a beautiful, articulated way that I love sharing it because, you know, when it comes through that purely, it, the, the power and the truth really um, uh, is, is moving. This is his first retreat. He said... It is the first day of the new year and I'm currently in very high spirits. As I write, 
and he was writing this for himself. I was just very fortunate that he shared it with me afterwards. As I write, I'm channeling a revelation about the secret to long-term happiness. Here it is. The real secret to long-term happiness, I think, stems from knowing that one's actions are in impeccable alignment with the truth. When there is an ingrained knowing that you're doing your absolute humanly possible best to be generous, compassionate, trying your hardest not to cause harm to any other being, that is it. And he underlines it three times. There's nothing you can possibly blame yourself for, and there's nothing anyone else can blame you for. When you arrive in this place, suddenly an inconceivable weight is lifted from your shoulders. In essence, you are frictionless with the cycle of suffering. And then he goes on a little bit more. It's so beautiful. He says, when there is no friction, one is in full alignment with the cosmic flow of energy because no energy is being diverted to dealing with suffering, like feeling guilty or pity or denial or attachment, something that consumes an unfathomable amount of energy most of us are unconscious of. And when one is in complete alignment, they're in a sense accessing their full creative potential. They're fearless in their motivation and have the ability to manifest things that they desire because they're not causing harm to others, but rather in the spirit of love, compassion, and truth. The bliss of blamelessness, that's it. It's not something you have to be some wise, deep scholar. We know that inside. And all it is, is being able to restrain ourselves from causing something that's going to lead, causing suffering for ourselves or others. You can practice a little with restraint around here. You know, I'm sure that the the precepts you've seen, what a protection they are. But you can experiment in little ways. Here's an experiment that I have found helpful just to play around with restraint on retreat. You ever notice when you're doing the walking meditation and somebody is in your space or starts to walk near, how you just want to see who it is. <laughs> who is that, anyway? A friend or foe? You know? <laughs> uh, or, uh, object of desire or object of Vipassana Vendetta? Uh, Well, if you notice that impulse, just noticing the intention, "Mm, I've got to take a look. (laughs) If you can hang out there a little bit, you ever see that, you know, the, uh, uh, (laughs) the replay button where they're going like this. Just hanging out there in that space and giving yourself a choice Just see what it's like sometimes to not look. I know you'll feel like you're going to die if you don't. That's how I did the first, my first retreat. 
I knew by the end of the retreat everybody's name in that whole retreat. It was, it, it preoccupied me. Oh, who's that? Who's that? Who's that? This is like, you know, 30 years ago, 31 years ago. So I know that, how that feels. There's other ways you can spend your time. (laughs) And as I started to, to get it, oh, this is, this is just completely taking me outside myself. And I, so what it's like, you know, I, I was blind without my glasses. Oh, what would it be like to practice without my glasses? I got so quiet, so, so much faster, you know. And I saw, oh, I've got a choice here. It just creates a whole lot of space. So you can just play in those different ways with restraint not a pass-fail test, but just to have fun with it and see for yourself, giving yourself that option. So, this is one aspect of letting go around restraint. I'll explore now a number of other aspects that I've um, just investigated for myself around letting go. One is letting go of our suffering. We can become very attached to our suffering. You know, it's like you, you ever have a, uh, a sore inside your mouth and your, your tongue just kind of goes there all the time. You know, we like to play with the sores. You know, meh, still there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ouch, you know, mm-hmm. still there. Well, we do that in our, in our life in many different ways because it's kind of, our suffering is familiar to us. Somebody was just saying yesterday or today, I forget which, about just how it can be hard to move away from that familiar home into something more extraordinary because it's just kind of, comfortable. Uh, a number of years ago, I, I saw, um, I saw a, something that really drove this home. Um, it was a, a painting by a wonderful teacher who uh, teaches something called the painting experience uh, here in the Bay Area, Michelle Cassou. Um, and Anna Douglas, who does the creative, uh, uh, creative retreat, studied with Michelle for, um, for many years. And I studied a, a bit with her many years ago as well. Very uh, luminous and, and high being. And uh, she was doing a series she was showing. It was, it's very rare that she did this, but she showed her own work uh, one time of her own series of paintings where the process, you just kind of let whatever is is there come through you. It's like Vipassana on paper and you don't hold back at all. No censoring. You just go to another sheet, another piece of the area of the paper if you feel stuck. You just let it all come through. Anyway, it was a series that she did on, um, on death. It was just what, where her mind was going. It was amazing. Uh, paintings. This one in the series, I'll never forget, she... Uh, it was about her own death, and there she was underground in 
the coffin. And there was, from the coffin, uh, there was a, a shaft that went right through the ground, through the sky, up to Buddha realms, a, a Buddha field up in the sky, with lots of Buddhas. And, and she said, it was so interesting, as she was, she was there in the, in the coffin underground, and there were worms and maggots and all kinds of stuff there, that were there. But it was kind of warm and cozy and it seemed like it was going to be a whole lot of effort to go from where she was up to the Buddha field. And so she just kind of, she, she painted this like, well, do I really want to make the effort to go up there? You know, Let's just hang out here. And when she said it, it, it just was so poignant of what we do holding on to our suffering. That's my suffering you're talking about. And we can sometimes wear it like a, like either a badge or we just kind of are cozy in it. Sometimes people start to open up to real peace or delight or um, profound happiness and it's a little bit unsettling. It's like, whoa, I don't know about this. This is kind of new territory. Just notice if you hold back or if you just kind of come back to the familiar of your suffering. We can let go of it. You don't get any extra credit for holding on to your suffering. But just to see that there's a choice in the matter. One way that we hold on to our suffering is by holding on to our stories about who we are. And so the possibility of letting go of our stories is really available to us. We have all these ideas, all these beliefs, oh, I'm somebody that this happened to when I was 14 or 8 or 5. And because this happened, I can never, you can fill in the blank. That's not so. Like we've talked about it here, so many inspiring people who've gone through very deep trauma, who've used their pain to develop tremendous compassion. We have all kinds of stories about our limitations, about oh, because of my, my body, I can't, this is, people will feel this way about me, or because of my mind, they'll feel that way. And we have all kinds of ideas about how we are in the world, our image. Uh, I, one, one retreat many years ago, somebody came in and said, um, well, I think I see the reason for my, my suffering is that I, I never received love when I was younger and she said and that's why I don't think I'm lovable and I thought and here is this very lovable person so I I thought is that true so I asked her you never ever remember Carol said when always and never come up I have a little flag that 
never, you've never, you never received love when you were younger. She said, no. I said, think. She said, not my parents, not my, not this and that. And then I said, okay, if that's so, so be it. But let's just hang out for a little while and see if there's any time you ever received love from anybody. She thought, it was about 20 seconds, she said, oh, well, I guess my brother. She said, well, he companioned me. I said, did he love you? Well, he he was a good companion. And I said, well, that's close enough. And then as she realized that she felt, she realized, oh, he really did love her. And she had to let go of that story. And in fact, there was a shift that dramatically happened when she didn't keep on recreating that story. And she is somebody who has, um, when you're around this person, you feel the, the joy and the, the love. This is about 15 years ago, this retreat. What story are you stuck in about yourself? As soon as you see through the story, then you can let it go. Because the stories are as real as we believe them to be and as empty as we see them to be. It's just a story that we create that imprisons us. One of my main practices, it is my main practice for getting stuck, is just when I'm really struggling, I just ask myself, what story am I believing right now? Or what thought am I believing? I think I might have mentioned it here before. As soon as I see, oh, that's just a story. Then the whole house of cards starts to dissolve. So letting go of the stories doesn't mean dropping them. It just means seeing through them. Just for a moment, I'd like, I invite you to just go inside and, and ask yourself, is there any story that keeps you stuck? About yourself or about life? What story keeps you stuck? What if you saw through it, just saw the emptiness of it and realized it's just a story. What would that be like? What would you need to understand or remember? To keep you from getting stuck? Just know that that's a possibility that any time you see that story, you can let go of it. Is that true? Maybe not. Maybe it's just a story in my mind. So, letting go of our suffering, letting go of our stories. Another way that we get hooked is figuring out. Now, this takes a tremendous leap of faith to let go of figuring out. 
it's so much fun, we think, to figure, if I just get to the answer in the back of the book, you know, in the cosmic akash, it's somewhere in there, what's the answer? There's no end to it. Now, sometimes wisdom does arise. This is called insight meditation. We did talk a little bit about this, that insight comes from aha. You know, if it comes out just the way you figured out, all you end up doing is saying, yep, pretty, pretty clever. But in order to have aha experience, it means you've let go of the figuring out mind to just see things in a new way. Have you noticed what happens when you've tried to figure out? What have you tried to figure out lately? (laughs) Has it gotten you the answer? Watch out for the word, why? I wonder why. You know, it seems like a simple enough benign reflection. I wonder why. Look out because it's almost guaranteed to get you into figuring out analysis mode, and that's not where wisdom arises, because the figuring out makes it too contracted for the wisdom to just emerge. This is where we have what's called don't know mind that was brought up in the questions today. Don't know. That's the the Sanim teaching, the great Zen master who, who passed away a few years ago. What's the meaning of life? Don't know, he said in this thick Korean accent. Where are you going? Don't know. (laughs) What's it all about? Don't know. Why does this? Don't know. He says, just keep don't know mind. Everything is much simpler that way. That was his main instruction. Don't know. If you can let go of knowing... Is a line in the Third Zen Patriarch. It says, stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. Isn't that how it works? As soon as you let go of, you've been running around and around and around in your mind and then you just say, okay, forget it. And then boom, it comes through. Just because you've let go of that figuring out. Another aspect of letting go is letting go of expectations or letting go of the future, whether it's in hopes or in fears. Just like with the don't know mind and figuring out, you don't know, you don't have enough information yet to know. And the future is never going to be reached. But we still do try in some way to create a sense of security by creating these scenarios or living a little ahead of ourselves. When that happens, then, and particularly there's a number of you who are seeing perhaps the, the end in sight to retreat, you've probably leaned forward a little bit. You know, at the beginning of the retreat, it's, did I pay my bills or leave my gas on or turn it off or what did I leave? In the middle, it's, what's for lunch? (laughs) And towards the end, it's, oh, what am I going back to? And will I... 
Well, if you see that, it's very, very natural. And for others, you are just heading into the depth of your practice. And you might also have, I wonder what's going to happen next. Okay? Here's a little exercise. I've done it with uh, a couple of people in, the, in interviews about leaning forward. Just imagine... I didn't do this here in the talk. Really. Just imagine in front of you is something that you're, that you're looking forward to or looking forward or dreading happening, right? And you want to just somehow resolve it. <clears throat> Actually, let's just pick looking forward to. Okay, that'll probably be easier for these purposes. Okay, and now just imagine it's out in front of you. Keep your butt on the cushion or the chair and indulge me in this lean forward right now just go forward come on it's just out of your reach come on leak do it if if you can get it you get instant gratification and then you realize it's not going to happen so now come back slowly and let your body feel what it's like to come back Sometimes when you get a visceral hit, you see, oh, this is where peace lies. It's not there. It's here. Because you don't know what's going to happen. And that can be a very delicious adventure. Instead of thinking, oh, I know this is going to happen. Forget it. I don't think I read this here, this um, about the... Um, guy who comes home from a Little League baseball game. Did I mention it? Driving home from work one day, I stopped to watch a local Little League baseball game. As I sat down behind the bench on the first baseline, I asked one of the boys what the score was. We're behind 14 to nothing, he answered, smiling. Really, I said? I have to say, you don't look very discouraged. Discouraged, the boy asked with a puzzled look. Why should we be discouraged? We haven't been up to bat yet. If you're behind 14 to nothing, do you say, oh, what's the point? You don't know. It's filled with miracles, life is. So not to lean forward in anticipation or in predicting, oh, yeah, that's the way it is. One of the, the options, one of the, um, in that book, the happiness book, one of the choices that the, uh, the people who uh, they researched makes, made, one of the nine choices is called options, where people who have found the secret to happiness are open to any possibility. They, don't ha- they might have a plan but then they let it go and see what's going to happen next. Rather than, does life pass or fail my test? So in that getting a plan, it's good to have a conscious plan, but then you just kind of see what life has in store for you. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to get lost because then you find another way. There's a, there's a story I'll share that I, I've shared on uh, retreats before, for, particularly for people who don't know what's next in their life. 
when I was at a, a crossroads at one point. This is uh, 1977. And I didn't know whether I would continue teaching school. I was an elementary school teacher or go up to the center in Massachusetts and, and work there on, on staff, which seemed like a pretty good option, or go out to move out to California or go to um, Asia, have my Asian experience. So I kept on going round and around trying to figure out what the next, the right one to do was. And I didn't want to make a mistake. I couldn't figure it out. Finally, I decided to go to a very wise man who I'd gone to a few times before for some really great advice. This is out in Colorado. Uh, His name was Reverend Miller, and he was a a psychic. Five dollars a reading. (laughs) Was not into it for the money. Just was this really wise being. And I said... um, listen, I have all these different options and I just don't know what, what to do. Um, please, you know, help me figure out what to do. And he said, um, well, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I said, oh. He said, but I will tell you one thing. I said, yeah. He said, it doesn't make a difference. I said, what do you mean it doesn't make a difference? That's my life you're talking about. <laughs> And he he believed in spirit guides and devas and things like that. He said, you know, if you're stuck in your own fear and paralysis, then the devas that your spirit guides can't help you. You're just frozen. But as soon as you take the next step when you need to, then you start putting yourself in motion and you see, okay, this is leading to this, or, well, no, that's not the way, this, this is the way, or this is another alternative, or something that you never figured would open up, opens up to you. So he says, you don't have to worry about making a mistake, you just put yourself in motion and life will keep on revealing itself to you if you're open to hearing. So letting go of making mistakes, letting go of knowing how it is, letting go of expectations, letting go of grasping. This is what the third noble truth is. Letting, letting go of holding on tightly to what we think is going to bring us happiness. We keep on getting caught in that, don't we? Not realizing that it's very painful to hold on tightly. Okay. So, as another exercise, just imagine, take one finger, and it's everything, it's something that you hold very, very dear. Your relationship, or your child, or your whatever it is. Okay, Put it in your other hand, and just... Hold on tightly, tighter, because you don't want to let it go. It would be awful if you lost this. Tighter, squeeze tighter. It would be terrible if you let this go or if it slipped away. Tight. And now just open your hand and release. See how much better it feels? You think you can hold on to changing experience. It's all going. 
This is where the pain is. This is where the release is. What we're letting go ultimately is the illusion of the control that we never had in the first place. You don't have control over much of anything. You can have input. You can be part of a participant in your movie, but you don't write the script. You're the star. Sometimes the the antagonist. Sometimes the the villain. Sometimes the hero. But you don't write the script. You just give your part and then see what happens. And as you can let go of that illusion of control, then trust is right there. And you realize you can trust in the awareness. Not necessarily that you're going to do it all right, but you can trust that awareness can meet the moment when it comes. It always has. The image that I have is like um, learning to swim. Did I mention this here? In this, you, you, uh, you, you remember the first time you learned how to swim and somebody put you in the pool and you kind of flailing about, ah, oh, and they said, just relax, relax, I'm drowning here, you know, just relax. And then after a while you kind of got what treading was about. Oh, yeah, this is much better. Okay, it's the going up and down, right? And then the miracle of miracles where you just completely let go and you float and you're held. The paradox that the less you flail about, the more you're supported. Well, this is the process of really learning to let go and trust that you don't have to overdo your life, that you don't have to figure things out, that you can simplify, and the release that comes from simplifying, from just being at ease from that control, the release that comes from acting within integrity, the release that comes from listening instead of figuring out, then you're in rhythm with your life. The image that I, I love is of Mila Repa, who is uh, the, the Tibetan great yogi with his hand to his ear. You can always tell it's Mila Repa. He's got his hand to his ear, the 100,000 songs of the Dharma that he's listening. And as he's listening, he's listening to the truth. This is what we're doing, learning more and more to listen to the truth instead of make it happen or figure it out because the wisdom and the love is just right here inside if we can let go of that contraction that says I've got to figure it out I've got to I've got to and just relaxing let go a little as Ajahn Chah says you have a little freedom let go a lot you have a lot of freedom let go completely you have complete freedom your troubles with the world will come to an end. So I invite you to just for yourself, see, feel, experience for yourself the joy of that release and letting go.
I'll close with a, a Dana Falls poem called Let It Go. Let go of the ways you thought life would unfold. The holding of plans or dreams or expectations. Let it all go. Save your strength to swim with the tide. The choice to fight what is here before you now will only result in struggle, fear, and desperate attempts to flee from the very energy you long for. Let go. Let it all go and flow with the grace that washes through your days, whether you receive it gently or with all your quills raised to defend against invaders. Take this on faith. The mind may never find the explanations that it seeks, but you will move forward nonetheless. Let go and the wave's crest will carry you to unknown shores beyond your wildest dreams or destinations. Let it all go and find the place of rest and peace and certain transformation. Let's sit for a moment. This talk was given by James Barris at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 27, 2006. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.